This is VLX number 122, Eye of a Needle. We are in Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 through 30. VLX stands for Video Lexu Divina. This is the Patristic Bible Study and Ignatian Prayer Series online. In nomine Patris et Spiritus Sancti, Amen. God our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In omni patris spiritu amen. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. You might notice a slightly different background here if you're doing the video version. I'm at a family's house and right behind my head is Pike's Peak. Let's do a quick review of Matthew 19. If you remember, the first part of this was Jesus teaching about marriage, how Jesus did not accept divorce under any circumstances. Then we have these children who come up to Jesus. He's on the way. He's walking somewhere in modern-day Israel, Palestine, and these children come up along the way. And the disciples kind of try to keep the kids from Jesus. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Again, this is just a review of Matthew 19 before we get to this point. Then we have this rich young man come up to Jesus. He shows off that he's kept the commandments, but he he goes away sad because Jesus has uh, honored him for keeping the commandments. But then he says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Well, then this man walks off. And so Jesus is on the way with his disciples and they have a discussion about what does it mean to not only leave wife, but all of your riches. And how important is it to leave your riches to enter heaven? Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled, but what's unique about this Bible study is we're going to look to see what the church fathers said about this. So, Matthew 19, verse 23 says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. So if you're doing the imaginative way of prayer, what I would picture is just this beautiful sunny day, kind of like what you see behind me if you're doing the video version, uh, this beautiful day in Israel, and the rich young man goes, goes away, but then the 12 apostles, maybe there's more since it says disciples, but we'll just picture the apostles since we can't picture hundreds of people in our imaginative prayer. Imagine you're with 12 apostles on this beautiful sunny day, and all 12 of you, or 13 of you, surround Jesus, and he's going to give you his own basically Bible study on this section that we just had in the Bible. This rich young man goes off and now we're going to hear Jesus's own terms on poverty. And so just picture um, these first century. Some of them were fishermen. Some had left jobs like Matthew being a tax collector. And here you have Jesus 
in the garment that Mary made him. And even though everyone's poor, I just tend to picture everyone as clean, since St. Philip Neri said, poverty does not equal filth. Um, but, of course, you know, their sandals are all dusty and dirty. I just mean they're not slobs. But you see the beauty of our Lord's eyes as he explains this whole section on poverty. So since I'm going to be reading a lot of the notes from the Dewey Rhymes Bible, we'll look at verse 23 and 24 in the Dewey Rhymes. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Amen, I say to you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's been also a lot of ink spilled on what was really meant by this camel to pass through the eye of a needle. The uh, professor who taught us this section in seminary, I think if I remember correctly, kind of had some real creative uh, bending over backwards type stuff. But really, the ultimate conclusion, this happened a long time ago, that people had a lot of different theories on what that meant. But ultimately, Father Cornelius Odlapide comes to the same conclusion that it really just means how hard it is for a camel to go into a pin. That's how hard it is for a rich man to enter heaven. Now, those of you who are rich, don't despair yet because we're going to see what the church fathers have to say about this. But this is what Father Lapide says. He says, but I say that the tall and humpbacked animal, which is commonly called a camel, is meant here. And then that sentence of his essentially followed uh, kind of different theories, but he ultimately comes to the conclusion that we're talking about jamming a camel through a needle. That's how hard it is to get a rich man into heaven. Now, the funny thing about Americans out there is uh, I've only met two rich Americans who admit they're rich. Everyone who's in the higher bracket than them is rich. So it really doesn't do any good for your own salvation to deny you're rich if you actually are rich. Just admit you are and, uh, and then decide what to do with it. We're going to see what the church fathers have to say um, that it's, you know, don't despair quite yet because we're going to see some pretty encouraging words from the church fathers, but we are going to see why riches are a hindrance to entering heaven. And so Father Lapide continues, Hence note that it was a proverb among the Jews when they wished to signify that a thing was impossible to say, a camel will more easily pass through a needle's eye than such and such, such, and such a thing will be. So this was a common phrase Jesus was using that shows that Jesus did use modern parlance. It wasn't to be relevant, it's just because he was incarnate as the second person of the Trinity in a real time. I think sometimes people out there think that um, Jesus was every man or wasn't actually in a certain time, but he acted like a normal Galilean in all things but sin, but of course had um, a supreme nobility and beauty and grace to everything he said. Father Lapide has uh, continued in some phrases in Europe in the 16th century about similar phrases that would be impossible, like a tortoise will vanquish an eagle, the earth will take to, to itself wings, rivers will run uphill, the sky will first fall, the sea will more easily produce vines, and obviously he's pretty funny, he says words will be wanting to a woman sooner. So these are all impossible things that are in phrases back then. But St. Jerome says this, this is a great line, not impossibility is declared, but infrequency is shown. That's the whole key that we're going to see as we launch into what the church fathers say. That is the key right there. Is it impossible for a rich man to enter heaven? No, but St. Jerome says it's not impossibility that's declared, but infrequency is shown. That's what Jesus meant about how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So I'm not here to allay all worries because obviously that's um, going to be infrequent, but we're going to hear later because of God, it's not impossible. So Father Lapide says again, 
you may take impossible here in a strict sense. For that a rich man should be saved is impossible with men, but it is possible with God, as Christ says in verse 26. Now, this is the point where all rich people out there kind of take a deep breath and say, okay, then I am going to be saved. But don't take too deep of a breath quite yet because we're going to see why riches or even attachment to riches is such a hindrance to entering the kingdom of heaven. Father Lapide says, By this similitude of a camel and a needle, Christ signifies that a wealthy man's riches are not so much an advantage to him as an impediment to virtue and the kingdom of heaven. Wisely, therefore, did he counsel the young man that he should give his wealth to the poor, and as a poor man, follow Christ who is poor. So notice, this isn't just an arbitrary decision that, uh, you know, a social justice warrior say to have the preferential option for the poor. This isn't just like um, God being mean to the rich or something. Notice right there, we heard that riches are often an impediment to virtue. Why is that? Well, for one, pride, vainglory, what people think of you, what they ask of you, and often greed gets tacked onto these things. So it's not just the riches. We notice that um, riches often lead to a lack of virtue. Allegorically, St. Augustine and St. Gregory the Great, by camel, understand Christ and by the needle his passion. Thus, it's easier for Christ to suffer for the lovers of the world than for lovers of the world to be converted unto Christ. It's a really beautiful line right there. Let me say that again. It's easier for Christ to suffer for the lovers of the world than for lovers of the world to be converted unto Christ. So Jesus died for rich and poor, but it's often the poor who more easily follow Jesus because the rich often don't want to be converted and follow Christ. True also for the poor, but we're going to see it's a little bit easier for them. Now, some of you out there might think I'm kind of this Bible expert, and I have kept up my Greek pretty well, but a lot of the times on these VLXs, I am just one step ahead of you guys. For example, I never could understand why in verse 25 we hear this. And when the disciples had heard this, the disciples wondered very much, saying, Who then can be saved? So I always heard that in Mass growing up, and I thought, well, wait a minute. Why would these poor fishermen and tax collectors who left all this, why in the world would a bunch of poor men be so shocked and scandalized and worried that the rich can't enter heaven? And the answer comes from Father Lapide. This is where we have to look to the Church Fathers, because again, Father Lapide, this Jesuit who wrote this book around 1600, he conglomerated all the Church Fathers, and as I've said before, Vatican I says anytime the Church Fathers on matters of articulated faith and morals speak unanimously, Vatican I says that is infallible. Not just a good idea, it's actually infallible. And so, as I've said before, the water is coolest and clearest near the source. So when Lapide points to something, he's pointing to what the best friends of the apostles, namely the church fathers and the early Christians, got from the apostles. Maybe that's one degree, two degrees, three degrees, four degrees, but it's very close in line with the apostles given by oral tradition directly to the early Christians and these church fathers. So what Father Lapide says, he's rarely speaking on his own authority. He's almost always speaking on the authority of the church fathers. And here is what he says about that line. He says, all who desire riches are counted among the rich. Boom, that shows right there. That one line answers what I had wondered for years without an answer. Why in the world were the disciples worried rich people couldn't get into heaven? The answer is because they were still desiring to be rich. That's why they worried. They somehow knew through Christ's words, either either because of idioms in first century Hebrew or the fact that um, we just know they hadn't been fully converted at this point. Um, the church fathers show that the apostles were worried at this point because they knew deep in their hearts they still wanted to be rich. And for some reason, um, all who desire riches are counted among the rich, as Father Lapide says. Then verse 26, 
And Jesus, beholding, said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are, are possible. There we have that Greek word again, epiblepsos, looking intently. We talked about that in the last VLX. And Father Lapide says, Jesus, looking upon his disciples, regarding them with a benign or kind countenance, soothed and calmed the timidity and anxiety of their minds. Father Lapide continues, But to God all things are possible, because God is the author and the fountain both of nature and grace and glory, and he so provides that by grace we should nobly and easily overcome all the difficulties and hindrances of nature. He brings it about that rich men are not influenced by their riches, but use them well, yes, that not a few forsaking them desire and follow the evangelical poverty of Christ. So right there we see it's not magic. It's not like God just jams the camel into the eye of a needle. It doesn't be that he just, you know, automatically makes rich people enter heaven. I think it's pretty clear Father Lapide is saying that rich people have to do one of two things. Either they have to um, use these riches well, or forsake them and follow the evangelical poverty of Christ. Now, on the other hand, the apostles do know, even though they have a little bit of desire of riches in their heart, they also know they've left everything to follow Christ. And we're going to see that they do give this question to Christ. They're very um, childlike and very direct with Jesus. It's not like, well, we're just going to sit on our laurels and hope all this turns out good, following this poor rabbi working miracles who the hierarchy doesn't like very much. They kind of understand that they've given up a lot, and they're just going to ask Jesus directly. It really is a great indication in prayer how we do have to approach Christ in his total majesty as God with great respect, but at the same time with great sincerity and great honesty, because they're basically saying, hey, we've left everything. What's in it for us? Um, You have to say it respectfully in prayer, but Jesus loves our honesty. One of the things Father Lapide says to encapsulate this whole section, we're actually going to skip forward a few pages here to see Father Lapide's answer, and I'm going to read this again later because this is really key to understand what's happening. It says he refers especially to what he had said immediately before concerning the twelve thrones of judgment, concerning the hundredfold, concerning the life everlasting which he will give to his followers. The Christ appears to answer a tacit objection of the apostles, for they might have said within themselves, again this is Father Lapide saying, kind of what the apostles wanted to say at this moment. How shall this be that we who are vile, poor, ignorant, ignoble should sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, when they are in them very many men eminent in dignity, wealth, learning, fame, authority, such as the scribes and Pharisees, and that splendid rich young man mentioned in verse 16, who is also a keeper of the law? Well, what we're going to do, we're going to see that Christ meets this objection, says Father Lapide, and declares that they are indeed eminent, you know, these different followers of the law of Judaism, and they have the first places in this world, that's key, in this world. But the apostles and others like them who left everything to follow Christ, who seemed in this world the poorest and the least of men, would be the first in life eternal, for as much as they were most dear to Christ, the king of heaven, and most like him in life and character, especially in poverty and zeal in preaching. So says St. Jerome. So that's a little preview of what's to come in this whole answer. We are going to get there, and I'm going to read you that section again. But basically what we're hearing is, yeah, these Jews who keep the law, or seem to keep the law, they're actually not people who keep the law very well, um, but those who seem first in this world, they do have first place in this world, but not in the next world. And that is what Christ says is not only for the apostles, but all those who follow apostolic poverty and zeal. 
we're going to see that that's what the church fathers say. Because I had thought this is another one of those things where I got it wrong. But we're going to see even though they are primary, they are the primary ones sitting on the 12 thrones uh, for all of time in heaven. We're going to see that anybody that follows them in apostolic poverty and zeal will share the judgment of the world that they get to enjoy. So verse 27, we're rewinding here to verse 27. Peter said to Jesus, Behold, we've left all things and have followed thee. What therefore shall we have? Father Lapides says, Namely, what sort of reward is in heaven and glory and life eternal? Peter, following Christ's counsel of poverty, and again, counsel means suggestion, very strong suggestion, which the young man had despised and having been strengthened, encourages the apostles because they were almost alone in following the counsel of poverty given by Christ. So what Father Lapide is saying here is like, there's a lot of people in first century Judaism who definitely knew Jesus's miracles as this rabbi were true and real, but very few people had followed him in poverty like the apostles. Father Lapide continues, and that he might still further encourage them he asks what reward and how great a glory awaits himself and the other apostles who follow Christ in his poverty and preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Thus Peter would confirm, inspire, and inflame his companions in their holy purpose. So whether Peter was doing this to encourage or he actually really wondered himself, the answer would in fact encourage all the apostles. Peter mentions we've left all things and Father Lapide says the things that we used to have, our ships and our nets with which we fished and earned a living, and although these were in and of themselves poor and small things, still Pope St. Gregory the Great says in quoting him and St. Bernard that he has forsaken much who has left the desire of having. Now that's key, this desire of having, because here you know it's not just me but the church fathers that are talking about riches equals either having or desiring. Riches in this section is having or desiring. How do we know this? St. Augustine says, Peter left not only what he had, but what he wished to have. For what poor person is there who's not puffed up by worldly hopes? Dostoevsky talks about this a lot, the sins of the rich and the sins of the poor, that the poor are certainly not off the hook because many poor will kill, will kill steal, and manipulate um, just as much as rich people to get richer. So you're really not off the hook if you're, if you're poor. Now let's look at verse 28. And Jesus said to them, Amen, I say to you that you have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit on the seat of his majesty. You also shall sit on 12 seats judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, a lot of times we think of heaven as kind of this just like steamy, dopey jacuzzi where we're all doped up and just happy. But no, heaven and hell is going to be, dare I say, even more real than earth, even more physical. And so these 12 tribes in some sense are literal they might be in like, I don't know, a fourth or fifth dimension, but they're going to include um, something physical because if we're going to have our bodies back in heaven, which we know, if we make it there, please God, so also these thrones will have to have some physical coordination to the 12 bodies of the apostles. Now, what is regeneration? Some of the church fathers thought this was baptism, but uh, Father Lapidate comes to the conclusion. He sides with the majority of the fathers, and he says regeneration is actually the general, general resurrection which will take place on the day of judgment. For this shall be the renovation of the body and of the whole man as well as, as of the universe and as it were their second birth to glory. So that's why in some sense these, these 12 thrones that the apostles are going to sit on, they're actually literal. Is he going to, are they going to be confirming the judgment of Christ or actually judging? We're going to see what the church fathers have to say in a minute. 
Father Lapide says, Christ will sit in judgment, and with him the apostles and those like him, and that on thrones of clouds, splendid and majestic, but each according to his merit and dignity. Notice that every apostle will be different, and the tribes they judge will be different, and so will their merit and their glory. Now we look at this section on you shall sit on twelve seats. Maldonatus and some others think that these were promised by Christ to the apostles alone. In other words, only the apostles sit and judge. But Father Lapide comes to the conclusion after looking at all the church fathers, he says, but most others with more probability think that this was the apostles and all others who preach the gospel, follow Christ and his apostles most closely. For Christ speaks to his twelve apostles, but in such a manner as to address in them their followers. For they who have equal labor with the apostles will merit equal honor with them. Christ therefore promises these judicial seats to those who have left all things and follow him in evangelizing. So, for example, in the Eastern churches, in the Eastern Catholic churches, you'll often hear people like um, Cyril and Methodius. They are called in Byzantine languages um, equal to the apostles. That is a term of numerous saints who have evangelized nations in the, in the East, equal to the apostles. St. Augustine says, For if there were to be twelve thrones only, there would be no place for Paul, the thirteenth apostle to sit, and he would have no way of judging, who nevertheless said that he would judge not only men, but even angels. Not only then those twelve and the apostle Paul, but as many as shall judge pertain to the twelve thrones on account of the general signification. So that's right there from the Bible. Remember, St. Paul says that we will judge angels. We're going to see that's not just kind of an amorphous, cloudy term. We're going to see, literally, we judge the angels, and it's mostly a confirmation of Christ, but um, in some sense, we're going to see that even our own intellect and will comes into that. St. Bernard points out that all who after, this is again pointing out that it's not just the apostles, but anyone following Christ, especially in apostolic celibacy, poverty, and zeal. All who, after the example of the apostles, have left all things and followed Christ, shall come with him as judges, just as every kind of mortal creature shall be judged. Since the number 12 in Scripture often signifies totality, the 12 thrones of the apostles represent the entire number of all who judge, and the 12 tribes of Israel stand for the entire number of those who are to be judged. Pope St. Gregory the Great says, The more they were despised in this world through their great humility, so much the more when they receive their thrones do they grow in the height of power. Kind of a scary or at least jarring line to realize that the Catholics we most despise on earth are going to be the ones most judging of the world as it goes the ways of the world, the flesh, and the devil. St. Bernard says, Happy indeed the position which in that singular clashing of the elements and that tremendous examination of merits, he's talking about the end of the world, in that so great scrutiny of judgments can make them not secure only, but glorious. So I know in a time when we all hear Christians shouldn't judge, the amazing thing is we are promised if we make it to heaven, the elect actually will judge. Now, I don't think this is like the primary reason you should actually try to make it to heaven, but it's right there in the Bible that we will judge the angels if we are saved. And are we just confirming Christ's judgment? Well, listen to what Father Lapide says from the Church Fathers. He says, Nor yet even merely by approbation of the sentence of Christ, which is how all the saints shall judge, for they shall approve Christ's just sentence of the pious and the impious to heaven and hell respectively. So it is mostly that. It's mostly a confirmation of Christ's judgment. 
but much more honorably and gloriously, as it were nobles and princes, doctors and judges of the heavenly kingdom, sitting upon their own thrones as assessors with Christ. Isn't that amazing? As assessors with Christ. In other words, what it's saying is that the general judgment, if you're saved, you will be an assessor with Christ of men and angels. As cardinals with the Pope, they shall in truth judge and pass the same sentence as Christ, by which they shall consign the just to heaven, the unjust to hell, rebuking and reproving those who despise their doctrine and the example of their holy life, while approving and praising those who cherished and honored them both and express this by following them. So notice the saved are going to rebuke and reprove those who despise their doctrine. Was it their doctrine? No, it was Christ. And this is why I'm always hammering away on apostolic Catholicism. I'm hammering away on apostolic Catholicism because you're only going to be saved if you hold to that, and we will judge those who didn't. This is why it's so important we actually hold to the faith once handed down to all the apostles. And then regarding 12 tribes of Israel, Father Lapide says, this does not imply that the apostles and the apostolic men shall judge the Jews only on the day of judgment, as Theophact and Euthymius interpret it, rather that one should understand the 12 tribes to mean all nations. So it will be Christ and the apostles and all the saved judging not just the Jews, but all nations. But there is something to be said about those living in persecution on this earth already receiving some recompense, just not in a worldly way. I think of someone like Father Altman, who was rejected by his diocese, but now, and I saw him traveling not too long ago, the whole world embraces him as he really goes around and um, shares the light of Christ and reform of the church, hears confession, whatever he needs to do. I see this in Father Altman, rejected by his diocese, but listen to what Father Lapide says. He says that the man who forsakes his possessions and friends for Christ's sake shall find that Christ will provide that he find a hundred that is, very many others who will give him the love, help, and concern of brothers, wives, and mothers with far greater sweetness and charity, so that it shall not seem that he has lost or left behind his own possessions, but has only deposited them in Christ's providence, where they seem to have multiplied at great interest, for spiritual affections are sweeter than natural ones, and someone who is strong in heavenly love, which piety has brought about, loves more than the one who is imbued with an earthly love which is innate. Therefore, he who has left one home for Christ will find a hundred and more homes of pious people open and ready to receive him with love and gladness. Priests and those who flee from their homes on account of the persecution in Japan, England, and Scotland know this by experience. They find the houses of all the faithful open to receive them to hospitality and are frequently migrating from house to house. Father Lapide says, So also he who has left one field for Christ will find a hundred fields of the worshippers of Christ by which he may be fed, and that without labor or toil, whereas he would have had to cultivate his own. In like manner, for one brother forsaken, there will be very many Christians who will cherish him with fraternal love and cleave to him more sweetly with spiritual attachment. Cassian says, Instead of that joy which any one had in the possession of a single field or house, he shall enjoy a hundredfold more the delights of riches who, passing into the adoption of the sons of God, shall possess as his own all things which belong to the eternal Father, and by charity and virtue following the example of his true Son shall proclaim all things whatsoever the Father hath are mine. John 16:15. And now no more with any penal care of distraction or anxiety, but secure and joyful he cometh, as it were, everywhere to his own, hearing daily what the Apostle preaches in 1 Corinthians 3:22. 
all things are yours, whether it be the world or things present or things to come. But, you know, we do have to hold to that. St. Francis of Assisi promised all future Franciscans they would be greatly taken care of as long as they weren't, like, sneaky in keeping things that, that came to the whole order. He says this. This is St. Francis of Assisi to the early followers. He says, Know this of a surety that there is no more secure refuge for the relief of our necessities than to have nothing. For if we truly be evangelically poor, the world will have compassion upon us and feed us abundantly. But if we are false to poverty, the world will forsake us. And if we ward off indigence by unlawful means, we shall endure worse penury. And so we'll just wrap this up. How about that line, verse, verse 30, and many that are first shall be last and the last first. Father Lapide points out that there will be some rich people who basically squeak into heaven by the skin of their teeth. How about them? Father Lapide says, Rich men who here below have led an honest but comfortable life, keeping only the precepts of God, such as the young man in verse 21, in heaven shall be the last. But the poor men who to the precepts have joined the evangelical councils and in poverty have followed Christ in preaching the gospel shall be the first in heaven. So we'll just summarize, as I said, page 273 that I said we would repeat. This is just a summary of the whole day, according to Father Lapide. Christ refers especially to what he had said immediately before concerning the twelve thrones of judgment, concerning the hundredfold, concerning the life everlasting which he will give to his followers. And he appears to answer a tacit objection of the apostles. For they might have said within themselves, how shall this be that we who are vile, poor, ignorant, ignoble should sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel when there are in them very many men eminent in dignity, wealth, learning, fame, authority, such as these scribes and Pharisees, and that splendid, rich young man who is a keeper of the law. Christ meets this objection and declares that they are indeed eminent, and they have the first places in this world, but the apostles and others like them who, who left everything to follow Christ, who seemed in this world the poorest and the least of men, would be the first in life eternal. For as much as they were most dear to Christ, the King of Heaven, the King of Heaven, and most like him in life and character, especially in poverty and zeal and preaching, these are those who will be first in heaven. And so today, it is probably the Catholics you see most despised, especially for holding to orthodoxy in a time of great crisis, and especially those who give up everything to follow Christ, they, if they persevere in grace, will be the first in heaven. Please say an Our Father for me at Benedictio Dei Omnipotentis. Pachi Sefiri et Spiritu Santi descendet super vos et maniat semper. Amen. <laughs>